if I can get this right. Okay, we're on. Hello, everyone. Good being back. This is not my first time here, so I didn't. I needed no introduction. I want to introduce some friends and my wife Shirley. I think don't think I've ever made her uncomfortable and had her had her stand and introduce her. My wife of almost fifty years. Hello, and my. <laughs> My friends, are Robert and Deneen Blevin, and Deneen's mom is here, and welcome. And I don't know if my friends at Blau Camps are here. <laughs> friends from way back, like 20 years ago, have come. So it's always embarrassing when your friends come to watch you preach and say, Oh, Lord, please give me a message that's clear. Let's open in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father and God and King, we thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are God. You are the sovereign Lord, and we are not. We are utterly dependent upon you. So I pray that you would make your presence known through through your word today, uh, that we would get it, that we would understand it, that it would change our lives, make us new creatures, make us more like Jesus, Enable us to glorify you and to honor you and to give you all the praise this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, my father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. See, God is at work. His work is a work of mission, a mission of redemption and restoration. He is working to restore the world, to restore peace in its original creation. And we, his children, have the honor of participating in his work of redemption. God sends us all out into the world to make disciples. And it's out of these disciples that he forms his church. And I want to read you the story of a church started about 2,000 years ago in the city of Philippi. Through the missionary efforts of, of the Apostle Paul, God starts the first church in Europe. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Acts 16, I'm going to be reading the story. It's rather long, but listen, allow the story to get inside of you and hear what the author Luke has to say. This is God's word. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he went to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, 
And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she had been, she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying, these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And when she kept this going for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, these are Jews. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They are, <clears throat> advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, with the, <clears throat> to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took him the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then they brought them up into the house and set before them and, <clears throat> and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of God. Great story, isn't it? It's the story of the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey and how the gospel first came to Europe. It's the story of God's work through the gospel and, and, and how he developed this church, church in Philippi. We know a lot about the church in Philippi because of Paul's letter to the Philippians. This might have been Paul's favorite church. It's the only church in which Paul is not trying to make some kind of theological correction. But he is encouraged by them. He is praying for them. He is rejoicing with them. 
Philippians is, is one of those books that has, has these great verses in there that you might remember some. A lot of memory verses. Some of you may remember first uh, uh, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. May remember Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My favorite is Philippians 4.7. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplications, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understandings will guard your mind in faith in Christ Jesus. My favorite verse. I'm still anxious, but it's my favorite verse. God loved this church. And he wrote in Philippians um, 1, 3, he said, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. He was constantly praying for this church because he loved this church and he remembered this church. And I wonder what some of the things were that Paul remembered. He probably remembered how it all began. He remembered perhaps the first three converts who formed the core of the church. He remembered how God had used the team and led the team all the way. He remembered God's power at work. He remembered that God was with them every step of the day. And today I want us to look at this story of Paul's missionary journey through the through three lens. God's providence, God's power, and God's presence. And although Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are the missionary agents. God is the one working behind the scenes through his providential leading, through his divine power, and through his everlasting presence. God is on a mission to redeem the world. First of all, God achieved his mission through his providential leading. He leads them. To Philippi. You know, Paul didn't really want to go to Philippi at first. Paul had plans to go to other places. Paul wanted to go to Asia and Bithynia. The text tells us that they, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's where he wanted to go. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. You know, God often leads us by preventing us from going to places that we think we ought to go. It's, frust- it's, it's so frustrating when we think we know what to do. We make our plans and we delineate it. We've got our five-year plan. And then we ask God to bless our plan. And then things don't go the way we think they ought to go. And so we wonder whether God is, is with us or, or not. You know, it's interesting that I had plans. When I when I became a Christian, I had plans. I had just been newly divorced from my wife. And I had plans that I was going to start a brand new life. And I was going to marry somebody. And now I got had other plans. He said, nope, I want you to remarry your wife. And so I ended up remarrying my wife. I said, okay, fine. And then I had plans. I was going to go to seminary, right? And I said, nope, you're not going to go to seminary. You're going to learn to love your wife as Christ loves the church. So I spent nine years at my old company, learning to love my wife as Christ loves the church. And then I said, okay, well, after nine years, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to seminary and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be ordained in, 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 in the PCA and I was gonna go into the suburbs, right? God had other plans. God put me into the inner, inner city of 
Baltimore to do ministry. We've got to remember Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God knows. Anybody remember Father Knows Best? Dating myself. God knows best. Paul and company were providentially led to Philippi through a vision. A man from Macedonia saying, he had a vision in the night, come to Macedonia, we need help. So that's how God finally led them there. We see God's providence at work and how he, he brought the first members of this church together. God led Paul to three people, to Lydia, to a slave girl, and to a jailer. They were three different people from three different socioeconomic groups, three people who would probably have nothing to do with each other. First, we have Lydia, whom we meet down by the riverside. Paul usually went to the synagogue, but there were so few Jews, Jewish men in that town that they couldn't even form a synagogue. So they would go down to the river. And it says that on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside where they supposed there was a place of prayer. And they sat down and they were talking to some women at the place. And down there uh, on the Sabbath, uh, they meet a, a woman named Lydia. And she's from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Lydia was from Thyatira, a city renowned for the purple dye there. It's located in some part of ancient Asia. She was a seller of purple goods which meant that she was a businesswoman. She had a home in Philippi, and probably in, Thessal, in, in Thyatira too, which meant that she was a wealthy businesswoman. She was a seeker after God, which meant that she was open to the gospel. So the church starts off with a wealthy, God-seeking Asian woman. The second person we meet is a slave girl. She was demon-possessed. Verse 16 tells us, as they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. By contrast to Lydia, who was rich, the slave girl was no doubt poor. She was being used by her owners because she could tell the future of the demon inside of her. The slave girl was not a seeker after God. She was a prisoner. She was a prisoner both externally and internally because of the demon and because of her owners. She was no doubt Greek and poor. The third person we're going to meet is the jailer. And they meet the jailer after Paul casts the demon out of the slave girl and causes a minor disturbance. Paul and Silas are taken by the magistrates, beaten and thrown into prison, and they put into custody of the jailer. Now, the jailer is most likely a retired Roman soldier with a civil service job. If Lydia's rich and the slave girl is poor, the jailer is somewhere in the middle. He's probably a working class guy who puts in his time at work and come home and just wants to chill out and have a beer and watch the game. The jailer is a Roman citizen. Three very different people from three very different walks of life, an Asian businesswoman, a Greek slave girl, and a Roman former military soldier. 
God seems to have a heart for cross-cultural churches, doesn't he? You might even remember that the first church where they were first called Christians in Antioch was a cross-cultural church. They had Greeks and Jews for the first time. It's also interesting that God would start a church with these three people. It was it was a prayer of Jewish men. They would get up in the morning and they'd say, thank you, God, that you didn't make me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. I just find it incredibly ironic that God would start the first church in Europe, a cross-cultural church, with a Gentile, a woman, and a slave. But that's God's providence. That's how he works in his world, not our world, his world. God is in control of the universe. And through his providence, he governs and guides everything that comes to pass. Our God is awesome in his providential guidance. But secondly, he's also powerful. We see God's power at work in the conversion of Lydia. Lydia was a God-fearer. She had given up the polytheism of Rome and had embraced the singleness of God that Israel was worshiping. She was down at the river with other women, perhaps having a Bible study. She had lots of questions, I'm sure, as they studied Roman, not Romans, but studied Moses and, and the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial systems. And she may have wondered, how do I know that I'm right with God? Do I have to make sacrifices? Should I go to Jerusalem? And there might have been some confusion. Paul sits down with her and he tells her about Jesus. He tells us that Jesus came into this world, he was born of a woman, that he submitted to the Jewish law, that he walked our streets, that he was betrayed, that he was crucified on the cross, but then on the third day he was raised and through him the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ is provided. And something happened to Lydia. Verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Only the power of God can open a human heart. If you're a Christian today, it's because God has opened your heart. Human beings can do a lot of things. We can put a man on the moon. We can make fusion energy. We can explore the universe. We can make computers that you can put in your to your pocket called cell phones. But only God can change a heart. And it took the power of God to turn Lydia from a God-fearer into a Christian. It also took power to cast out the demon from the slave girl. We don't have that kind of power, do we? It is only through God's power that Paul was able to cast the demon out. The slave girl was walking around with the demon Telling the truth, saying these men are these men are from God, telling me how, how to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. And the, the text tells us that Paul finally got annoyed with her. And although she's telling the truth, but it's very annoying because she's screaming and she's annoying them. And he cast out the demon in the name of Jesus. And it's only through the name of Jesus that we can do anything. Without him, we can do nothing. Nothing. There's, an, there's a funny story in Acts 19 about some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, and they tried to invoke the name of Jesus over these evil spirits, these demons, but they didn't have authority. And they would say something like, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached, I command you to come out. 
And the story goes that one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Don't mess with demons. They're real. God's power converted Lydia. God's power cast the demon out of this girl. And it would be through God's power that the Philippian jailer would come to faith. But not before a little incident. You see, after Paul cast the demon out, the owners realized that their means of making money was destroyed now because she could no longer tell the future. their, Their means of income was destroyed when the demon was taken out. Paul and Silas do a good work. They, they, they enslave this girl, but, but the owners don't appreciate it, do they? And it's because their means of income was destroyed. You know, Christianity is good as long as you don't mess with people's means of income. As long as you don't mess with the systems. People like your Christianity. Martin Luther King was okay as long as he kept his faith inside of his church. But when he began to mess with Montgomery boycott, the bus boycott, that's when he got into trouble and his life was threatened and there was a bomb put on his front porch. The culture accepts Christianity as long as it doesn't interfere with its systems. And Paul and Silas were Messing with the system. And as a result, they were taken to the town square and the magistrates take them. And they say, these people are disturbing the peace here. And they're beaten with rods. And I don't know what rods are, but it must have been awfully painful. And they were thrown into prison and the jailer was told to keep them safe. And so I don't know about this jailer, but this jailer decides to put them into the inner prison. Not just the prison, but the inner, inner prison where it was dark and musty and rat infested. And he puts them into the stocks. Now, sometimes when we think of stocks, we think of the New England things with the hands up and the head in. That, that's how what the stocks were. The stocks were instruments of torture. And they would take the legs of the prisoners and they would open them to the, to the pain, point of pain and hold them and lock them into that position. And so their backs are hurting. They're, they're in a cramping fit. They're in total agony. And the question I would ask you today is, why would God allow his missionaries to be treated this way? Have you ever wondered why God allows bad things to happen to good people? Well, I've got to make one correction. There's no such thing as good people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I hate to bust your bubble, but there's no good people. But God does allow bad things to happen to his children for a greater good. Think about the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And how God used that in his life. And Joseph saw it towards the end of of his life also when, when his brothers came to him. And they thought his brother, that Joseph was going to try to get even. And Joseph said, am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Think about the worst, the most horrible thing in history, which is the cross. But God used the most horrible thing 
in history. The crucifixion of His very Son for the ultimate good that we would be saved, that we would be able to call Him Abba, Father. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things are working together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Being beaten, thrown in prison, put into the stocks is bad news. But God was going to use it for good. God was going to use it to save the Philippian jailer. You see, round about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and are singing hymns. And the prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was this earthquake. And so the foundations of the prison were broken. And immediately all the doors were open and everybody's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and saw that the door was open. He was about ready to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cries out, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights. And I'm sure it wasn't this kind of a light, but called for lights and rushed in. And trembling, he fell before them. And then he brought them out. And he asked a penetrating question. You know, the way this story is usually told is that the jailer rushes in and he falls down. And he said, what must I do to be saved? That's not how the story goes. The story is that he falls down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out. You see, he is thinking about, I have never seen anything quite like this as he's bringing them out. And when he brings them out, he wants to know what must I do to be saved? I have never seen anything quite like this. You saved my life. He was ready to kill himself because he knew that the penalty for the prisoners escaping would have been his own, his own death. And he was, and, and Paul saves him. And Paul doesn't run away. All the prisoners are still there. And if he, he might have even heard them singing. It might have been what put him to sleep. I've never met people like this in my life. Whatever you're drinking, I want to drink it too. What must I do to be saved? Amazing. Wanted to know, through God's power, this man was saved through the evidence of what he has seen, through the, through the testimony, he was, he was saved. God uses different ways to bring each of us to himself, doesn't he? With Lydia, it was a Bible study. With the demon-possessed girl, he, he, he set her free by, by, by releasing the evil, evil spirit. And the jailer came to faith by seeing the evidence of God's power. Three different ways, three different people, three demonstrations of God's power. How did you come to faith? We all have different testimonies. I'm fascinated when I sit in a new members class to hear the testimonies of people. Some people say, you know, there's never a day in my life when, when I didn't know the Lord. See, they were, they were saved maybe one or two, three. And they couldn't remember. Maybe you were saved in a, in a youth group. Maybe you were a little older and perhaps it was a college ministry in which you were saved. Maybe you got saved when you were at the right young age of 34 when you didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity and somebody asked you if you wanted to study the Bible and you said, what are you, crazy? Intelligent people don't study the Bible and over the course of time, through God's Spirit, you are led to believe that Jesus is the only way. God is powerful to bring us to Himself 
in his own way, none of our testimonies are the same. Don't compare yourself to other people. Take the uniqueness of how God brought you in glory in your Father in heaven who brought you to himself. God leads through his providence. God demonstrates his power by changing the heart. God shows us his love by being ever-present with us. Third point, God's presence. God is present with his church planning missionary team. He's present with them all the way. He's present with them when he prevented them from going to Asia and Bithynia. He was present with them down at the river with Lydia. He was present with them when Paul cast out the demon. He was present with them with the incident at the jail. He was present with them when the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? But I think the most powerful demonstration of God's presence is seen when Paul and Silas are in prison. Here they are, having been beaten with rods, thrown into prison, their backs bleeding, locked in the stocks, and they're singing hymns. I cry and complain for a splinter. This is a special presence of God. It's almost like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God was there with them. You remember there was a fourth person there? And that's what's happening here, that, that God has a special presence with his people. And I think it's something that Paul never forgot. He never forgot how God was with them. And I wonder if it was here that Paul learned the secret of being content. You know, being content is a secret. None of us are naturally content. This world is hard to live in. We're broken. Things are jacked up. People are jacked up. We, we run into conflict. But I wonder if it was through this difficulty and through his time in Philippi that Paul learned the secret of being content. He said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Have you learned the secret of contentment? See, I fully believe that when you're aware that God is providentially working out reality, and that if you know that God is all-powerful, and if you know that God is with you, I think you begin to learn to be content. I don't think it's something that happens overnight. I think you'd be a Christian 10 years and 15 years, 20 years, sometimes 30, 40 years. And you begin to get a a clue. You begin to believe just a little bit when Jesus said, I will be with you always until there might be some truth to that. Um, hmm, I can stop worrying about sermon prep, Shirley, because God's going to give you that sermon. (laughs) Stop worrying about it. I can stop worrying about whether whether I'm going to be able to raise all the money we need to raise for a particular problem. You know, God is, if it doesn't happen, it must be because God didn't want us to have it. And he knows better than I know about what ought to happen. I make plans, but my plans, you know, my plans are a little jacked up here and there. His, his plans are better. So if I'm going down this road, maybe God wants me to go down this other world. You know, when I was a new Christian, I used to wonder why God kept us in this world. I was wondering, you know, why doesn't he just beam us up? 
<laughs> you know, he leaves us here in order that the world may see him through us. We are his ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We represent God in a dying, hurting, sick world. We represent him to a world filled with racial divide and ethnic divide and gender divide and national divide. And we come with a message of reconciliation. And the message of reconciliation is that God is redeeming the world. He's making all things right. In the story of the first church of Philippi, we see God bringing together a disparate group of people. Lydia and her family, the jailer and his family, and a slave girl to form a community that the world has got to shake their head at and say, how did those people come together? We've been given a commission to go into the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, realizing that he is with us always. And I believe the more we wrap our arms around the mission of God, the more we come to know our God, the more we come to know our God, the more we get in step with his mission, we begin to realize it's not about us. It's about our, our sovereign God who sends us on a, on a mission, on a, on a mission of redemption, a joyful mission. And the more we get into it, the more we say, this is where the real joy is. The real joy is not in all this stuff. There's a lot of stuff out here that's, that's a lot of fun, you know? I mean, nice houses and boats, and there's nothing wrong with it, but there's a greater joy. There's the kind of joy that God can give you where no matter what the circumstances, you can learn to be content. Sitting in prison, back beaten, in the stocks, they're singing hymns. Please, Jesus, show me how I can get over just the little things that I might learn to rejoice in your sovereign power in your providence, in the reality that you are with me always, even until the close of time. God leads us here to go. Go tell a dying world that there is hope. Go and tell God-seekers like Lydia that there are answers to her questions. Go and show God's mercy to people held in bondage and poverty and abuse. Go and demonstrate the power of God to change lives so that people can ask about the hope. You want people to actually come up and say, there's something different about you and give you an opportunity to tell them about the hope that you have in you. Village Church, go. Go into the whole world. Make disciples. Rejoice in the Lord who is yours. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our God, our King, we thank you. We thank you for Acts 16 and for this great message of hope that we see demonstrated in the Apostle Paul and his team. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us such instruments that we would be able to actually rejoice in difficult circumstances that are totally unnatural. So that people will wonder, like the Philippian jailer must have wondered about these guys. We pray that our lives would be such an example, such, such a model that people would actually ask that, and so that the power of God can be demonstrated through our lives. I pray for this church, for his mission, pray for its pastor, 
uh, that you would give him uh, even power now as he preaches in Birmingham and as he leads the Unity Fund, as he leads his congregation and his role in his denomination, that we would be instruments of righteousness, that people would look to us and realize that God is real. God is all-powerful. God is all-present. Thank you again, Lord Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.